I love this time of year, though. I love this time of year because the days are a little bit longer. And not only are the days a little bit longer, but it starts to get warmer. Now, I'm not a hot weather fan, and I'm not a huge fan of summer. But one of the things I do like about summer is it lets us be able to go out to this thing called the ocean or the lake. How many of y'all like going to the ocean? Now, how many of y'all like going to the lake? See, there's more. It's about 50-50. I thought there'd be more ocean people than lake people. I like both. But I love going to the lake because the lake lets me do a lot of fun stuff. I brought a picture of a lake that we're going to show you this morning. Ah, I just messed up the morning for some of you guys, I think. It's peaceful, beautiful. I love going to the lake because it's a lake. I can camp. I can fish at the lake. I can do some swimming if I want to. You risk getting bit by the carnivorous fish that are in the lake. But it's, it's safer than going to the swimming in the ocean, though. Like, I got issues when I go swimming in the ocean, especially when I can't see the ocean floor underneath me. I watched Jaws, and it jacked that up for me. Like, I can't, I can't hit the, the ocean anymore. But I love going to the lake. I love going camping. I love having fun. I love boating and canoeing. I, I, I love fishing from a boat. It's just so much fun. Going out there, I remember one time, this was years ago, I was with some friends in Texas, and we went to this guy's place, and he had a boat, and he's like, I'll take you guys out on the lake for the weekend, and we'll have some fun, and we'll do some tubing, and it's going to be a a great time. Now, there's two kinds of tubing. There's like lazy redneck tubing, where you're in a tube going down the river. How many of y'all have ever been tubing before? Yeah, there's a strategy when you tube though, like like that. Have you ever have you ever noticed though, like when you go tubing, like all your friends are going down the the river and all that, and you're out there for like four hours or six hours, and nobody's got to get out of the tube to go to the bathroom, <laughs> and all that time. You ever notice how that happens? That's why when you go tubing, you want to be in the first tube in line. You don't want to be in the last tube because the water's always warm when you're in the last tube. Always, y'all think about that. You'll get that. It's gonna, it'll sink in in a second. I always want to be in the first two. <clears throat> but we went, I call it suicide tubing in a way, man. They, they hook you up to a boat on a tube or a float, and they drag you around the lake at speeds that nobody should ever be drug around a lake at. And the goal is to get you to go flying off of this thing so they can all laugh at you well, you're flying through the air and you hit the water, you know. So we went that kind of tubing. And we were, it was our turn to get on the tube and we were having so much fun. He was dragging us around the lake and I was on there. It was a tandem tube and I was on it and my friend Jeremy was on it. And we're bouncing around the lake for a while and he's hitting all these waves and wakes and the driver of the boat can't get us. Like we're holding on. We got a strategy. Like we got the death grip on this thing. He's not going to throw us off. Well, my buddy Jeremy started talking smack to the boat driver you're weak, you're weak, you ain't got this, you can't throw us, you can't throw us. No, bro, you need to shut up. You don't need to get this guy and make this a competition because he's going he's gonna to do something that'll, that'll mess us up. And sure enough, man, hey, the boat driver had heard enough yelling. My friend Jimmy, you're weak, you can't do this, you can't throw us. And then the boat driver just said, okay. And I heard him say, flush the toilet, like that. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but it can't be good. Uh, Jeremy just got, like, you had that one friend, you're out in public, and, like, uh, there's trouble starting with another group of people, and you're trying to defuse it, and then you got that one friend just going, come at me, bro, come at me, bro, you can't do it, that's Jeremy, like, I was like, bro, you just need to be quiet, but he got us in a situation 
that it wasn't going to end good. So here goes the boat around in a circle, around in a circle, around in a circle. And we're like holding on to this thing. And the wake and the waves just got insane. Started, you know, beating us to death. And then the next thing I knew, I had let go. And I was floating up in the air. And it seemed like I went up forever, forever. And off in the distance, I could hear the people in the boat going, oh, my God, look how high he is. And I started flipping. Anytime you're up and you can start flipping, you're up high. I don't know how high I was, but it seemed like I was like up there, like I was getting ready to dodge airplanes or something. And I came down, and I hit the water, and it was unlike any other water I had experienced before in my life. You get in a bathtub and the water's nice and it's warm. You get in the shower and the water's like, hi, how are you today? I'm here to clean you. You have fun. You get in the pool and the water's like, all right, let's great. Let's just have some fun. You know, you're in a hot tub and the water's like, I'm here to help you forget about the world. That's not the water I hit in that lake that day. When I hit the water, it was like hitting concrete. It was just like, bam. And I slowly sunk in. My life jacket kicked in and I turned into a bobber. And you know what I heard? I heard all my friends laughing at me. <laughs> they were just laughing. They were just laughing. Um, you guys have crazy experiences on a lake. Uh, when I was a little kid, my family would always go camping. That was just our thing to do. We'd go camping. And I still love camping today. I love taking my kids camping. And they would take me out when I was way too little to be turned loose on the lake, and they would put me in a playpen and put me just right up at the edge of the water so I could kind of play in just a little bit of water and still be dry, but I could entertain myself and, and be safe, you know, and they could have their fun doing what they wanted to do in the lake. So they put me in a playpen at the edge of the lake, and I remember I graduated from the playpen. We were camping, and I got to go out in the lake, and I don't know how old I was, um, mom will probably tell me she always makes corrections to my stories after service. She lets me know the facts and how, how it actually played out, and it wasn't how I remember it, but she'll, she'll set me straight this morning. Um, but I, was, I, I remember going out in the lake, and I remember being told not to go out too far. And mom and dad, I think we had some other people out there with us, and they were on floats and swimming, and, and I was here, and I know they had their eye on me. But you know how the slope goes from the shore out in a lake, and sometimes it can go like that. Well, I walked out, and I got to the place where I felt like it was starting to dip. And I was so young, I didn't know what was going on. And, and I was kind of doing this, trying to keep my balance in the water, and I went over and I didn't know how to swim then because I was, I was too young. Didn't know how to swim that well. And I remember going under and kicking and coming back up to the top. And I got my, my, my face and my nose above the water just enough for me to yell, help. <coughs> just help. It's like that. My hand up in the air and I went back down. And I thought, this is it. And I tried to hit the ground. I remember kicking back up again, trying to get up and swim, and I couldn't do it. And it was almost over for me, guys. Like, it was almost over. And I remember an arm coming in that water and grabbing me and pulling me back up. And if memory serves me right, it was Dad. He grabbed me and pulled me up. And I remember these words. He said, I got you, son. And he took me back to the shore. And I probably cried. <laughs> but... But, but my dad saved my life. I was in a helpless situation. And I wouldn't be here today if he hadn't done what he did 
and been paying attention and been the covering over me and saved my life. Um, guys, that's just what Jesus does for us. Just what Jesus does for us. Everybody in here, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're at a point in your life where you were literally drowning in your sin, overcome by the world, in desperation, dead spiritually, and Jesus came in and breathed life to your body and literally snatched you up out of a lake of sin and saved your life. Amen? That work he did on the cross restored us, he healed us, and brought us back from a dead place. Ephesians says that we were all dead in our sins. A lot of time in church, we try to think that God takes a bad person and makes them a good person. That's not how it happens. He takes spiritually dead people and brings them back to life. He brings them to life. And that's the message that we preach. That's the gospel that we share. That's the hope that we carry is that in the name of Jesus, you can have salvation. In the name of Jesus, you can have restoration. In the name of Jesus, you can have healing emotionally and mentally and in your marriages and in your homes. In the name of Jesus, he takes us from the old and brings us over to the new and makes us a new creation with a new future, with a new purpose, with a new plan to impact this world for him. And there are so many other people that need to hear this gospel guys we can't forget the mission that he has called us to it is not just about us accepting what jesus has done in our lives but it's about us taking what he's done and sharing it with the world amen amen now when we lose focus the church becomes a self-centered ritual instead of the movement that jesus intended it to be when we lose focus of that, when we lose focus of that heart, when we lose focus of that purpose and that mission, church becomes self-centered, and we become self-centered in our own spiritual lives. The natural progression of every church on this planet is to do this right here, is to become inwardly focused. If we don't check ourselves and keep ourselves straight with the Word of God and in our relationships with God, amen? probably seen that in your life i know when in in the past when i've strayed away from that it's become all about me all about my struggles all about my stuff and it's not that god doesn't care about that it's that there's other stuff for us to do while we're here that's why he does when we accept jesus as our lord and savior that's why he doesn't snatch us up off the earth he leaves us here because there's something for us to do amen the church was never meant to be an institution i'll say that again the church was never meant to be an institution The church is a movement that spreads as we go out. Never meant to be an institution. Jesus established the church to be a movement to spread, to take the gospel all across the earth. We've done a good job in taking that purpose and switching it and twisting it and making the church about us instead of about them. We made it an institution instead of a movement. And you can look all through Scripture, and I, I challenge you, show me anywhere in Scripture in the New Testament where the church is presented as an institution and not as a movement. It's a movement that's supposed to spread Jesus everywhere we go. If you're in prison too long, <laughs> if you're in prison too long, <clears throat> they, they call you institutionalized. Institutionalized. That means you get used to being fed the way that you're fed. You get used to the routine and the ritual, and your life 
It's just you just you just become so comfortable with it that the thought of going out to the outside world scares you to death, and so you become institutionalized. And guys will get released from prison, will actually commit crimes to get thrown back in because they don't want anything to do with something outside the walls of the prison because in the prison it's safe. In the prison they know their routines. In the prison they've got their little group of friends, they got their comfort zone, and they're there, they're institutionalized. You know, you can become institutionalized as a Christian in church. You can get really comfortable with what happens around in here. And the thought of taking what happens here outside the walls of the church can become incredibly intimidating because we're used to this. We're comfortable with this. We can talk Jesus all day long in here, but when it goes out there, when we're on our jobs, we don't talk about that. We switch and become a different person to fit in with that group of people and institutionalized. I made a quick list just to give us some characteristics of people that are kind of institutionalized and have that mindset. I was wondering if we might be mature enough to kind of go through this this morning. I got 10 things I want to share with you, just real quick. People that are institutionalized to church kind of do these things. Number one is this. They complain about free coffee that a church offers. Isn't that crazy? I want to come hang out with you for a little bit this morning. Is that okay? They, they complain about free coffee. Uh, when we get so institutionalized, we become self-focused and self-centered, and church suddenly becomes all about us and how it can cater to us and not about how we can reach the people in the outside world. So we complain about free coffee. Well, that's not the way that I want it. They don't make it strong. I know that never happens here at LifePoint Church, but... At other churches, I've heard of this being a problem. Complaining about the free coffee. That's insane. Here's the number two thing. This is just, they have their seat in the church, and they get upset if someone else sits in it. <laughs> this is my seat <clears throat> right here. This is Josh's seat right here. And if I show up on a Sunday morning and somebody's in my seat because I got here late, oh, my gosh, it just throws off my whole Sunday experience. It's crazy. It's not the same God over there is, is right here. <laughs> Worship sounds completely different. Oh, and it kind of does. It sounds different over there than it does here. Different people sit over there. I'm used to my, my little row. And the people that I can know, I just, mm, they have their seats. The third thing is this. Number three. Oh, they complain about the sound. This is a great day for that. I promise you, I didn't know this was going to happen before we put this on. <laughs> it's kind of funny. They complain about the sound typically, not because we have issues like we did this morning. That's, that's a legitimate thing. But uh, people complain about the sound being too loud or the sound's too soft or the sound's this or the sound's that. The translation is, it's not set the way that I want it. I want this whole place to bend to my comfort and my liking. I want this whole thing to circle around my universe that I'm the center of, and I expect everything to make me happy. And when it's not set the way that I like it, I get huffy. That's what institutionalized Christians do. Number four. Oh, boy. Then they complain about the style of music that's being played before a service. That's insane. That's insane. Well, dadgummit. They play too much. They, they got songs with too much bass. Too much bass. They play too much of that rap music. Rap music don't have no place in a church. It should be soft worship music before service. Unless you're under 25, and then you're like, wow, this music's putting me to sleep. I need something with a beat to it. You know? 
like different. There's no way to get the music perfect for everybody to like it. So institutionalized Christians, they complain about the music because they don't like it. And they don't consider a fact that maybe the church is setting the music to reach the culture that the church is trying to reach. And it's not about our preferences. It's about what's going to be successful in making someone who's never been to church before comfortable when they come into the church. Amen? So here's something else they do. The fifth thing is this. Oh, boy. Complain about worship styles. This worship style is too modern. I don't know the words to all these new songs. There's too many words to these new songs. There's a lot of words to a lot of a lot of stuff and then in some of this modern stuff there's like the same chorus repeated over and over and over again like um there's a joke that says you talk to a worship leader today and you say hey what do you do and they say i write modern choruses for worship 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 i write my good good father all that is the simple stuff this is a great song but it repeats itself a lot you know um or it's too traditional. If I hear Amazing Grace one more time, Amen. my head is just going to explode, which is a great song. Too traditional, too outdated. And some of y'all would love to hear more traditional stuff, wouldn't you? Yeah. And then some of y'all would love to hear more modern stuff. We're going to play what's best to reach the people we're going to reach. But when you're institutionalized, this becomes an issue. Who cares? It's the same God we're worshiping. I don't have to sing a word that's on that screen. I can worship God. I can worship God without singing a word. You know what I mean? This is preference. Worship has very little to do with that. The sixth thing institutionalized Christians do is this. Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm meddling a little bit. I hear complaints from my pastor friends. This is what they do. They leave their trash all over the church for someone else to clean up. I know we don't have this problem here. Institutionalized Christians think it's somebody else's job to do what they are supposed to do. Somebody else is supposed to clean up. Hey, I don't think we have a huge problem with this, but this is what institutionalized Christians do. They come in because this is supposed to be all about them. They'll throw their trash all over the place because since it's all about them, somebody else is going to come along and clean it up, and it's going to be just fine. And they don't think about the witness that it has to someone who's a guest here in the church. Seventh thing is this. Oh, boy. They melt like a snowflake when a pastor talks about money in any way. Even though it takes money to reach people for Jesus. It takes money to reach people for Jesus. It's so funny. People don't get upset when a pastor preaches about sex and not sleeping with someone before you're married. Or to talk about anger because they don't have anger issues. They don't have problems with sleeping with people. They, they don't have pornography problems. I have an issue with any of that. But when somebody touches the money thing, if you've got a problem with money, it's going to hit you the wrong way. I promise you this. We are going to talk about money and finances in this church until the walls fall down because financial power leads to effective ministry. Amen? We're just going to do it. Institutionalized Christians get upset. It makes me uncomfortable. All that church wants is my money. The church don't want your money. Look, if you don't trust me, I've said this before. Give to another church. Give to another church. But give to God what is supposed to go to God. Amen? Amen? We're not about money here. We're about seeing people saved and seeing lives reached. And if you don't trust us here, give somewhere. But my God, give. Don't be a snowflake that freaks out. Because I'm going to start preaching too much. Anyway, um, 
Number eight. Oh, boy, here you go. You hear them say key phrases like this. I like small churches. Or I don't like a church where I don't know everyone. Institutionalized Christians that have that mindset say these things. I love small churches. That's not a biblical statement. It's not a biblical statement. Because if we're reaching the people that we're supposed to reach, what's going to happen to the church? It's going to grow. It's going to grow. There are going to be people that come into the church that we're not going to recognize. That we're not going to know. That we're actually going to have to get to know. And that freaks out institutionalized Christians because they're used to familiarity. And they're used to comfort. They're used to what is. And when change comes, they hate that. I've heard more Christians make statements like this, and it's there's no way a church can function biblically and not grow. Really. You get weeding out times, I get that, but if we're reaching people with the gospel, people are going to be coming into the church to be discipled and grown. Amen? So we've got to change that. You really wouldn't have liked the early church. First message preached by the disciples of the early church, 3,000 people got saved. Just like that. That's not a small church. It was estimated that the church in Jerusalem was somewhere between fifteen to 25,000 people. Just in Jerusalem. Before it was scattered out. Can't say stuff like that. What you're really saying is, I like my comfort zone. I like my group of friends. And I'm not interested in reaching anybody else institutionalized number nine they say this oh boy they're always talking about going deeper in the spirit but they never invite others to church and have very limited commitment to ministry institutionalized christians are always talking about how deep they're going in the spiritual things but they bear absolutely no fruit of a deep walk with god the bible addresses that very specifically And it says that they have a form of godliness, but they deny what? Deny the power. Always talking about going deeper. Man, you are never going to be deeper in your walk with God than when you're being obedient to the word of God and carrying out the great commission to reach people and let people know how much he loves him. And the tenth thing is this. Hmm. Institutionalized Christians, I can tell you this is true from a pastoral standpoint. They are the source of 98% of all the division, all the drama, all the complaining, and all the witchcraft in the church. Hands down. This group of people that are familiar, that are comfort or, or comfortable with it, and they think church is all about them, all the problems in a church comes from this group of people. People that are on task, hungry for God, and stepping out and trying to reach people and excited and passionate about their ministry and doing what God has called them to do, they don't have time to get caught up in stuff like this because we're busy carrying out the Great Commission. People that are institutionalized, they get caught up in that. Jesus hates this mentality. In fact, when you look in Scripture, when Jesus was establishing his church, he, did, he never intended for this to be an institution. He never intended this to be something comfortable or something familiar. He intended for us to be a movement to change the world. And it's almost like he went out of the way all through his life to give us example after example of what his heart and his mindset and what he wanted for the church to be. And one great example of this is in Matthew chapter 16, um, where... 
This is where he was making a great announcement about the church, and he was, he was letting everybody know, hey, I want to have a church. I want to establish my church. Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, remember that. We're going to come back to that in just a second. He asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Boom, Peter got one right, finally. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus makes this big announcement about starting his church. I will establish my church. But it's crazy to me that he chose to do it in a region called Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you stay with me, I'll explain to you why. Caesarea Philippi was an area that was kind of north of Jerusalem, if I'm remembering right, and it was like the northernmost point that Jesus ever traveled, or one of the northernmost points that Jesus ever traveled. And it took about two weeks of walking to get from Jerusalem to Caesarea Philippi. So you don't just accidentally go there. You have to very deliberately intend to go there. Caesarea Philippi was an area that it was bad. The people there were, like, there's there's sin and then there's sin to the 20th power, and that's what those people were, sin to the 20th power. It was a very pagan community. Um, They worship a lot of uh, false gods and idols. It was a a polytheist community. They believed in many gods. They worshiped every god except the one true god. And they would do the rituals and sacrifices and all that there. But they lived, they were heinously evil, though. They would commit unspeakable acts with each other and to each other and, and, and other things. They were just, they rivaled Sodom and Gomorrah with how messed up they were. That's about as clear a picture as I can create for you. They rivaled Sodom and Gomorrah that was so evil, God destroyed. They were pretty close to that. They were pretty close to that. Y'all stay with me if the sound's freaking out a little bit. We we need to. We'll get rid of this thing. We're good? Okay. So, it was a really bad area. Y'all still with me? It's a really bad area. It was so bad that Jews didn't go there. If you were a Jew... It, it was just almost law. You didn't go to Caesarea Philippi because it was so bad and so sinful and so dirty and so corrupt. They believed that just walking on the streets in that community would make you ceremonially unclean. Not doing anything, just being there. It was so filthy that just being there would make you ceremonially unclean. So Jews didn't go there. Now, in the region right there in Caesarea Philippi, there was a cave that had a crevice in the middle of it, and the wind would come up through it, and it would create all kinds of groanings and ghost kind of noises and creepy kind of sounds. You know, you got this dark cave with all these weird noises coming, coming out of it. And, and so the people in the area said it had to be the spirits and demons screaming and escaping from hell. And so they literally called that spot the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. So while Jesus was establishing his church, not only was he making a statement that hell itself 
wouldn't prevail against it or overcome it. But he was directly referencing the area, too, and saying that this kind of stuff wouldn't overcome the church either. Kind of cool, huh? Kind of cool? So what the people did was they built a temple around this thing called the Gates of Hades. It was in this cave. They built this temple, and in this temple, they would worship all of their false gods. They would they would do their sacrifices, sometimes human sacrifices, animal sacrifices. They would do all this stuff. And all right, guys, tell you what, we're going to kill this. I'm going to go to the handheld mic, okay? Check two. Okay, there we go. So they would, they would do all these sacrifices and, and worship all these gods in this temple. And... One of the gods that they worshipped was the Greek god Pan that was a goat god. And these people were so messed up when they worshipped this god Pan. You know what they did as part of the ceremony? Cover your ears if you're a little squeamish. They would have sex with goats. As part of their worship to this god, they would get it on with, with the goats. I've been in ministry a long time. I ain't never heard anything like that in my office. That's just crazy. Look, when you're doing stuff like that, that's bad. That's bad. Y'all knew it was coming, didn't you? You knew it was coming. But this is the kind of people that lived in this area. Jesus chose to walk two weeks to a place that Jews didn't go to in an area that was so heinous they considered you ceremonially unclean for just hanging out in a place where people did unspeakable stuff like that. That's where Jesus chose to go to announce his church. When Jesus was, when he was born, angels appeared out of nowhere and sang heavenly songs. A heavenly choir showed up and started announcing. We had stars appearing. Shepherds came from afar. It was a big deal when it was announced that Jesus would be born. When Jesus began his ministry, when he was baptized, John the Baptist pointed him out and said, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the earth. It was a big deal. When he came up out of the water, the Bible says the sky split. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And you could hear the voice of God the Father speaking, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. When it was announced that he would begin his ministry, it was a big deal. But when Jesus announced he was going to begin the church, he went to the worst place imaginable to announce it. And there was no heavenly stuff, no sky splitting. He just made a statement that when I establish my church, It's going to be about this right here. Maybe Jesus wasn't making an announcement so much as he was making a statement. I want my church to be established to reach the worst of the worst. The unclean, the broken, the people that everybody else turned their backs on. He marched as far away as he possibly could from an institutionalized religious city to the most sinful place in the area to announce the beginning of his church. That's powerful. That's powerful, powerful. Um, When he was calling his disciples, he did the same thing in Matthew chapter 9. He's calling Matthew. As Jesus went down from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He went to a tax collector. Now, some of you know this, but some of you might not know this. Look, back then, if you were a tax collector and you were a Jew, you were considered the worst of the worst in that society, because that means you have betrayed your own people and swore allegiance to the Roman government, and you're choosing them over your own people 
and you're robbing your people blind. Plus, he's a tax collector, and nobody likes tax collectors. Amen? So there's that, too. There's that, too. So you literally, in, in their culture and in their mindsets, you've got, like, the worst sinners, and then you've got tax collectors that are a little bit lower and dirtier. Like, tax collectors were considered, like, a, a, a prostitute could walk by the street and look at a tax collector, and she'd go, boy, you need to knock that off. That's nasty. That's, what, that's, that's, the, that's the mindset that these people had. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. Now, look what Jesus does here in this next verse. Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Now he went home with this guy. And many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now he's drugged the disciples into this. He's having dinner with people that were considered sinners and tax collectors. The Son of God's just hanging out with them because that's what Jesus did. And here comes the polar opposite. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus, now listen, Jesus isn't very tactful because he's still there sitting with these people, and this is what he says. He goes, uh, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. He just called everybody there in the house sick, and he got away with it because he's Jesus, and he can do that, I guess, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. But the sinners. Jesus' heart is to reach the lost. All through his ministry, you see this. He would get as far away from religion and religious mindsets as he possibly could and put himself in a place where he could reach the worst of the worst. In, in Luke chapter 19, you see this Jesus' mission. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's his heart. And he took that mission and he transferred it to us. And he said, now what I've done, I want you to go out and do individually and as a church. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we've been coming back to this for this whole series. Says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It was his mission. It became our mission, and he expects us to go out and accomplish it. Amen? Amen? The church was never meant to be an institution where we come to be comfortable. It was meant to be a movement that would take the gospel of Jesus all across this world to see lives transformed. That's why it's my heart for a lot of things to happen in this church. That's why as a church, we can never become comfortable in what we do. It's my heart that this will be a church that unchurched people can attend. That when they come here, we're not going to judge, we're going to love. Amen? We're not, because they don't look like us and talk like us. You know, Jesus had a way. Jesus, Jesus was always finding a way to, to like people that were nothing like him. And it's amazing because people that were nothing like Jesus were always liking Jesus, unless you were a Pharisee. He was always connecting with people. Our church should be a church where it's comfortable and safe for people without a church background to come in here and hear the gospel. Where they can come in and cuss in our foyer because they don't know any better. Where they can smoke in our parking lots because they don't know any better. So they can come in hungover if they want to because we're going to give them the gospel and we're going to let Jesus change their lives. Amen? 
We're going to let Jesus change their lives. I want us to be a church where unchurched people can come to. This another one I want my heart, my heart is that I want our church to be a church that's outreach focused in everything that we do. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I want LifePoint Church to get out there and reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want people, when they come in here, to know that we're a church that they can come to, but I want them to know that we're also a church that isn't just comfortable with being in here. We want to go out to the community. Amen? Amen. we got a ton of stuff coming up. Um, the end of April, we've got a great opportunity. It's called the Ultimate Block Party that we're doing with, with Douglas County. We're going to be out there having fun. We're going to be out there giving away prizes and giving away packs for kids and loving on the community. And listen, this is going to be a great opportunity for Life Point Church to get out there and reach people. Amen? We're going to be out there. We're going to be working with the county this year on three major events. We're going to get out there, love on people, pray with people, let them know who we are, that we're there for them. Um, we're going to, listen, we're going to raise the bar on our support for community ministries around here like the Pregnancy Resource Center. I think that we should put money where it's going to do the most good. And these people are doing a great work. They're doing a great work in saving unborn lives. And we should support that as a church. Amen? Um, there's a lot of stuff that we can do. What's really cool to me is that a few weeks ago I was talking about things that we could do in the community. And I was talking about outreach ideas that we have and that we don't really have like someone overseeing these things. This is all vision and intention right now. We don't, we're not at a place where we're executing this stuff yet. Like I would love for us to adopt an area in this community close to our church and just get out there and pray with people and cut their grass and rake their leaves and do something simple as changing a light bulb and just showing them the love of God and just letting them know that there's a church that's there for anything that they need and building relationships with the people around us. Um, I talked about taking care of... uh, just the widows and the single moms that we have here in the church that have projects that they can't get to themselves or may not have the money to be able to have things fixed. We've got skilled men and women here in the church that would allow us the opportunity to take care of our own. Amen? So I was talking about stuff like this, and I had some men come up to me after the service and said, you know what, hey, why can't we do that? Why can't we get out there and do this? Why can't we organize it? Why can't we take care of our widows? Why can't we take care of our single moms? So, guys, we're actually in the works of establishing a ministry through the men in the church that's going to be able to do that stuff. In just a couple of weeks, it's been, it's, it's in the organiz, like we're organizing it right now, but we're very close to being able to get out there and do this stuff that we're talking about. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? I love it. I love people that hear the need and see the vision and step up to do it. And I want our church to be that. And the last thing is this, is that I want our church to be a movement that will take the love of God to the world. That doesn't mean that you have to go buy a blowhorn and take it with you to work. And at lunch or at break time, stand up on a table and say, The Lord God says to you today, repent or go to hell forever. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. But being a witness, you know what being a witness means, guys? Being a witness means that, like, put it in a court application. When you're a witness in court, you're giving an account of what you have seen in your own life. 
being a witness doesn't mean being a preacher, even though that could be part of it. Being a witness doesn't mean that you walk up to someone cold turkey and you say, hey, are you saved? Do you know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? People wig out with that. That doesn't mean. Being a witness means that you go and you be yourself and you tell those around you about what you've seen God do in your life and in the lives of others. That's it. That's it. And as we go out and share and believe, then we can demonstrate that with the power of the Holy Spirit when we pray for our friends that are sick and see them healed. That's cool, right? That's cool. That's what being a witness is, and I want our church, not that we're not, but I want our church to be that on a whole new level. I want us to be that on a whole new level. And I know what you're thinking right now. Some of you are thinking, that sounds awesome, but I don't think I can do that. That's just not my thing. That's just not my thing. I need like three or four or 15, 20 more years to grow in in my walk with God before I'm comfortable with doing that. Um, The gospel's never been about us being comfortable. Not one time, ever. Not one time, ever. And if you, listen, I'll say this. If if it if you're at a place where you're not passionate about talking about the Jesus that has done so much in you, I say there's a whole lot of stuff that needs to happen in your heart. There's a whole lot of stuff that needs to happen in your heart. If we can't love the people around us enough to tell them about the Jesus we love so we don't see them go to hell, that's about as selfish as a person can get. Institutionalized. We don't want that here at Life Point Church. Throughout history, God has chosen common people to do the uncommon through throughout history. And that's good news for guys like me, and it's real good news for people like you. It's good news for Christians all across the world because God does the uncommon through common people. Through Scripture, he picks, he picks people like Matthew who were tax collectors and hung out with sinners. He picks people like Peter who was a hothead and couldn't control his emotions. He picks people like that because... He's got a way of showing himself strong through our weakness. It's not about us. We get tripped up on ourselves, and we forget about the unlimited possibility that we have access to in Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about... If a guy like Peter can be used by God, I guarantee you everyone in here can be used by God. All through history, you see him using people that were common to do uncommon things. Even recently, you look at the ministry of Catherine Kuhlman, you might not know who she is. Google her when you go home. A lot of fun information on Google. Google her. She had a powerful healing ministry. Hundreds of thousands of people saved through her ministry. She came from the middle of nowhere on a dirt road in Missouri, I believe. Poor, broke, hum- humble beginning. She even said of herself, I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talents. She said, I can't sing. I can't, I can't play an instrument. And she said, I'm not even a good speaker. And if you listen to her preach, you know that was true because she just could not really, as far as technically, she was not the best preacher. She would just get up there and ramble and share. But she had something that a lot of us need to connect with. She had a willingness to let God use her. And she had a dependency on the Holy Spirit to operate in her life. And she saw signs and wonder after sign and wonder after sign and wonder through her ministry because she was hungry for God and was willing to let him move through her. Billy Graham just passed not too long ago. 
he came from the middle of nowhere too. A little farm just outside Charlotte, North Carolina. Poor. God used him to reach countless millions of people in our modern age. He is a historical figure. And he's probably, he was one of the most humble people you'll ever come across. He just let God use him. D.L. Moody, you guys ever heard of D.L. Moody? Yeah, we were talking about this on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago. Well, if you've ever gotten hungry for God and wanted more, you, you've come across the stories of D.L. Moody and the stuff that, that he was able to do. Because D.L. Moody, he was an interesting case study because he came from absolutely nowhere. Nowhere. His father died when he was four years old. His mom raised ten children, if I'm remembering right, ten children as a single mom. Couldn't afford to keep up with them, couldn't afford to feed them or clothe them. So she sent a lot of her children to homes where they would trade work for food. So they would work in this home, and they would, in return, they would feed them, and they would give them clothes. And that's how D.L. Moody spent most of his life growing up, working for his daily food. D.L. Moody, this blows people away when they hear this for the first time. He never had passed a fifth-grade education. Never had passed a fifth-grade education. He, um, he never went to seminary. <laughs> he, never, he never was a licensed minister, really. The guy just wanted to give his heart over to God and let God do anything he wanted to in and through him. He was broke most of his life. And he was at a service where an evangelist was preaching, and it impacted his life tremendously. And he went out to a park, as the story goes, and the words of the evangelist just kind of echoed over and over again in his spirit. The evangelist made this statement. He said, the world is yet to see what God can do through the life of a person who is fully consecrated and committed to him. And D.L. Moody sat on that bench, and it, 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 it wouldn't get away from him. And, and as, as he, was, he would tell his testimony later, he said, I, I thought within myself, you know what? He said a person. He didn't say a smart person, an educated person, a rich person, a noble person. He just said a person. And it lies within each person whether or not they'll make the decision to make that entire consecration and commitment to God. D.L. Moody made a decision on that bench, and he said, I'll do my best to be that person. In the late 1800s, at the peak of his ministry, with no mass communication, no TV, D.L. Moody was speaking to crowds of between ten and 20,000 people at his crusades. He had a huge impact. It's estimated that in the lifetime of his ministry, D.L. Moody led more than a million people to the Lord. Nobody special who just wanted to do something for God. He even has a Bible institute that he established. A guy with no seminary background and no ministry license established a Bible institute. That's awesome. I love it. We get caught up in all the things that we don't have, and we lose sight of the things that God can do through us. He's got everything that we need. He's got everything that we need. 
That's why I make statements like this, that Jesus makes a difference in our lives so that we can go out and make a difference in the lives of others because I believe at this church that we can make a difference. I believe that we can make a difference because we serve a difference-making God. We serve a difference-making God. Bow your heads and close your eyes.